All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's everybody? How's everybody heading into the holiday season? My guest today is uh, Alex Gibney. He's a documentary filmmaker, and I'm sure you've seen some of his stuff. Like uh, He did uh, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. He did Going Clear, Scientology, and The Prison of Belief. Uh, he did uh, We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks. He did The Inventor, uh, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. And he's got a new one. It's called Citizen K. And it's, a, it's, it's really about Russia, about uh, Russia, uh, you, you know, at the time where they opened it up to experiment with uh, free market capitalism. And then it shut back down with Putin. And it sort of moved through the arc of that, of, 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 of what happened and, you know, Putin's rise and, and where the oligarchs come from. There's a lot, you know, we read constantly about, about Russia and, uh, you know, we hear about Russia, but, you know, structurally, I, I don't know historically what happened or how it worked or what the oligarchs really are and were and where they came from and how that happened and what happened to the, the sort of brief experiment with capitalism in Russia and how that broke the thing down and, and sort of left a vacuum where Putin could come in. It's And it's all done through the story of this oligarch, uh, Mikhail Kordakovsky. And, uh, you know, it's really... It's it's stuff you don't know, and it deepens your understanding of both America, both Russia, and the dynamics that are sort of in play as we speak. As I talk right now, given that this is the day before, you, you know, I, I imagine by today the president of the United States will have uh, been impeached by the House of Representatives, deservedly so, and uh, and the the kind of fight over that, the the framing of that, the spin on that will sort of further dictate or, or add flame to the fire of whether, you know, we turn into a, a functioning sort of authoritarian country with the uh, facade of democracy or, uh, or some form of uh, democracy and the people's will will persevere. It's really, we are really uh, on the beam with this stuff. And I know a lot of you, some of you are like, come on, man, it's, you know, just Relax. You know, the elections, whatever, man, whatever. You can read your tea leaves, I'll read mine. It's weird. I'm up on the 16th floor of this hotel, and there's actually leaves kind of floating in the air right out my window. Just I've seen two or three of them. I don't know if it's the wind coming up the building, but it's weird how pieces of garbage or leaves or little light things just take flight. I don't know. It seems uh, kind of spontaneous. I'm not reading anything into it. It's just sort of interesting how things will just float sometimes. So... Let's let's lean into this somehow. I it, it some you know when I talk about my life, and I talk to you guys about it, it's really all I got. You know, I'm not uh, you know commenting on things that happen necessarily in the world or in the news, and I'm very I'm very happy that so many people were able to relate and connect to my reflection about my cat uh, passing. I got a, a, an amazing amount of emails of support and people sharing their stories. And I, I sat here in my hotel room and uh, wept with uh, with some of the other stories. And just it really helped me kind of it helped me, as I may have helped you, you know, to process or revisit, you know, a very real sort of grief and loss. But but that the, the depth of that feeling for anybody, no matter what it's about, is is a profoundly human thing a profoundly human space, a profoundly 
human feeling. And, and I would imagine that you know, most of us, in, if you are relatively sensitive to what's happening in the world or, or uh, you know, kind of engaged with it, uh, either are in a, a kind of mild chronic state of PTSD uh, or, or at the very least a sort of chronic state of, of, of sadness and fear and anxiety. So I feel that when, when something can provoke a certain amount of release of, of that grief or, or that sadness or the sadness in general, if it has any context that is something that is finite, like, say, the, the death of, a, of an animal or revisiting the sort of memories of a loved one that has passed, that the experience of at least releasing some of that grief and experiencing some of those feelings uh, it has got to be um, profound and, and cathartic because I'm sure that for a lot of us, it, it sort of taps into the kind of the type of grief and sadness and anxiety that you know, we really can't tap into on a day-to-day basis because there is no lid to it. There is no context to it. It's, it's ongoing and, and the fear of just sort of kind of a, basically emotionally losing your mind is always possible. So those moments where we can feel the grief uh, in a contextualized way that is finite and already has closure uh, is, is, is good for the heart because it, it's almost impossible to live in the grief of current existence for a lot of us. And I'm glad that uh, it's, it still connects to so many of you. So let's talk to, let's talk to, we're not talking to anybody. I would like to, to talk about my dates. I do have tour dates coming up, the freezing my ass part of the, the hey, there's more tour. Uh, I've been screwing up a couple of the dates, so let me just go through it. On Thursday, January 30th, I will be in Cleveland, Ohio at the Agora Theater. On Friday, January 31st, I will be in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Fountain Street Church. On Saturday, February 1st, I'll be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Turner Hall Ballroom. Friday, February 14th, I'll be in Orlando, Florida at Hard Rock Live. Saturday, February 15th, I'll be in Tampa, Florida at the Straz Center. Thursday, February 20th, Portland, Maine State Theater. Friday, February 21st in Providence, Rhode Island at the Columbus Theater. Saturday, February 22nd in New Haven, Connecticut at the College Street Music Hall. And Sunday, February 23rd in Huntington, New York at the Paramount. You can go to WTFPod.com slash tour for links to all the venues. Now, I I got a lot of emails, as I said, in response to what I was going through with uh, putting my cat down. But one came before that that was sort of a, a poem, and, and though he spelled my name wrong, it's, I, I'm going to let it go because I liked where it went on a spiritual, mystical uh, level, poetic level. Uh, the subject line, Cats and Gods. Dear Mark, here are my best wishes to you and the choice you must make and how to best alleviate your feline friend's discomfort. Regardless of your decision, the life LaFonda lived has been made immeasurably better by your presence. By design, it seems these struggles with mortality lead us directly to wrestle with our individual understandings of God which, if we trace it, goes back ages to the ancient Egyptians, whose history, I understand, can be a soft spot for some, yet still it should be stated that they did do us all a service by domesticating cats, 
or were they themselves domesticated under the watchful eye of LaFonda's ancestors? Having said that, though, on your own ancestors' shoulders, Mark, fell an even heavier burden, the domestication of society, helping people reach into a realm of the self reflected back to us out of that unwavering stare of the unknowable vessel that we refer to as the cat. If what made lions into cats, wolves into dogs, and artists out of apes isn't God, then I don't know what is. Whichever way you look at it, if you can be there with her when she passes on or the roller coaster comes to a halt while she is around other loving humans, remembering that LaFonda was there at the beginning and played a part in all of this should hopefully ease the pain. The first time I listened to WTF, you read the old Hebrew prose, If I am not for myself, who will be? If I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Trying comedy over these recent years has felt to me like learning to fly. Here's to the nine lives we live. Thank you for all you do. Boomer lives. Thank you, Patrick. That was uh, pretty stunning. Uh, I, I, I liked it. And, uh, and I, it, you know, it, it is food for thought, my friend. I, I don't know where, where God goes, but I do know there's a leaf floating upward outside my window. That's probably just wind, but there are moments, you know, in the crisp fall weather it was kind of cold here but it's kind of clear here in atlanta which I, i'm still here in atlanta uh, i got here friday i was supposed to shoot on monday that got bumped up to wednesday night which is tonight so i've been just sitting around man i'll tell you you go it's not really a stir crazy thing but because of the nature of my work right now it's really i'm just waiting and uh, studying my lines and thinking about things and freaking out about other things and trying to maintain a decent diet, trying to get a little exercise, trying to get out into the city to experience a little bit, catching up with some, uh, got a couple old friends here. But the process of being on the road uh, with nothing to do um, <laughs> is, uh, you know, it's a challenge, but it's part of the gig, man. And I've gotten out. I went down to the Vortex, down to the Laughing Skull and did a few comedy sets. Donnell Rollins was in town talk to him a bit he's he was at the club did i mention the uh the birthday cake fiasco i mean jesus man so the first day i go to set you know i'm there all fucking day and they're shooting a scene of a kid's birthday party and uh, they got this beautiful like old it's a period piece so they they got these old-fashioned birthday cakes and they only used like a few slices so there was two and a half of these chocolate birthday cakes just at the craft services table that they didn't use, just beautiful, old-timey, moist chocolate cake with the white icing. And yeah, I don't know what the fuck happened the first couple of days I was here, man. I think it was coming out of losing La Fonda, eating cookies. And I swear to God, I think I ate half of one of those cakes and it just didn't stop. But the other night, man, so I'm going through all this shit emotionally. I'm away from home. Now I'm you know, uh, disproportionately worried about my other cat's so I decide to watch Marriage Story. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, whatever. You know, it just triggers all that divorce shit. Where, where's the trigger warning on that shit? That it's going to reopen the horrendous anger and hurt of anybody who's been through that process. I don't even have kids. And my divorce was one of the most traumatic, fucked up times of my life. And boy, it brought all that shit right back. But that feeling of wanting to go into something, you know, in good faith and then lawyers are hired and it turns into a just a destructive f- 
clusterfuck I, I definitely related to. But so to recover from that, I decided on some urgings from uh, people who listened to my talk with Jay Roach to watch Chernobyl. So I burned through that. You know, I binged Chernobyl. So that's just, you know, radiation poison and governmental uh, cover up and lies. It just that was leveling. So needless to say, uh, waking up this morning, a little grim, just happy it wasn't raining. But I'm okay. So, so Alex Gibney is um, he's a, he's a pretty a pretty engaged and and great documentary filmmaker. I I've, you know remember talking to him years ago when I was at Air America, and uh, and and now kind of reconnecting with him uh, about his latest documentary called Citizen K. It's now playing in Los Angeles and will open in other cities in the new year. Uh, you can go to citizenkfilm.com for more info. Uh, and this is me and uh, Alex Gibney back at the house. Have you had to put a cat down, uh, Alex? No, they kept getting run over. Oh, really? Yeah, that that was our problem. Uh, there was just the blood splattered all over. Oh, my God. The... Here we got coyotes, so. Yeah, yeah I no, I remember. Not. I used to live in Glendale. You did? Up in the Montrose area. Oh, yeah? What? And I remember one... I mean, we there was a famous incident where we used to have guinea pigs. We had a little shed in the backyard, and uh, there was this huge racket. Yeah. And I went out there in my, you know, boxers, you know, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And there were these three coyotes, you know, like desperately trying to get into the thing. At the guinea pigs? Yeah, at the guinea pigs. And they shot past me. And there would always be the, the you know, the detritus of cats who had been ripped apart oh. by coyotes because up it's high up there right i know I mean, yeah. yeah so you'd see a lot that's of the where coyotes. they bring them right is that what you're saying yeah that's terrible yeah I, I think i lost one to a coyote I, I i i'd like to think he just went and found someone he'd rather live with right but i <laughs> that's, that's yeah. the uh well <clears throat> let's let's hope that's true yeah th- that's the yeah. reality i've created that's the right. myth that's the belief system i put in place good Around that cat. You're welcome to it. So I uh, I watched the new movie. Yeah. I've seen many of the movies. I watched the new movie, and I, I got to be honest with you, I knew nothing about the structure of contemporary Russia. Yeah. And I guess it's it's sort of a lot of people don't. I mean, a lot of people uh, don't. That's even... why I did the movie. I didn't know that much about it either. Yeah, I didn't know what... I, I know what oligarchs are, but I didn't know what that meant necessarily, right. right? Right. Or what the relationship was or what created it. Right. And so that was your impetus. Like, you know, I'm going to learn about this. Well, after 2016, yeah. uh, something happened. I thought, well, maybe we should know a little bit more about Russia. <laughs> yeah, we, we should learn a little bit more about the new bosses. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now that we have a president that seems to be a functioning oligarch... Uh, yes, that's right. ...of the, of the Russian of regime. The, of the Putin school. I I, I'm, I'm not sure that he's he's taking orders, but I, I think they they you know they subscribe to the same school. But I mean that's interesting though because you know I've I remember the movie uh, the Enron movie you made the smartest guy in the room yep. and you did the Scientology film and yep. you know you sort of kind of penetrate these uh, these uh, I don't know what they I guess they're systems they're structures they're belief systems and they're uh, bureaucracies built on lies. Right. What do you think is going on? 
What in the whole Russia story? Well, I mean, just with the uh, with just and then this is like off. Uh, this is an opinion thing. Yeah. I mean, what do you think Trump is really in relation to this? Is he a self centered, self serving businessman that just wants his hands on that Russian money? Well, I think he's a self centered, self serving businessman. That's, right. That's what he's all about. Right. And and of course he's a narcissist, which makes him a perfect politician. But I I think if you see everything that Trump has done within that sense of self-centeredness and this idea that it's just all about him yeah it makes a lot more sense and you know because because i think that was one of the interesting things about the the russia story in that way too is that the putin system is how you rig capitalism and the government for your own benefit i get well the the, the story of what's his name kodakovsky yeah yeah Kodakovsky. Well, I mean, I see that on one level, but you know, you know, thankfully, on some, and 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 also, on you know, not so much, is that uh, there's a willingness for Americans to be stupid without you know, you know, without having to take people out and kill them. Right. Uh, there, there just seems to be like a, this sort of uh, infrastructure of distraction and and consumerism. Yes. That uh, you know, it's it's a lot easier to dupe Americans. Yeah, though I I, I think the body count is higher than we think, but it's not done. The same uh, way. With, with a whack, you know, in the middle of the night by some agent. It's uh, done through negligence. Well, yeah. System, or or, so. or, or the, the, the pursuit of profit, like the opioid crime. Let's not call it a crisis. Let's For, call it right, a crime. Right. Which kind of leads back to the malignancy of consumerism on some right. level, That's right? right. And need and desire and exploitation. But I mean, it seems to me, because I can't keep quite wrap my brain around it until you see this, like a movie like yours, and also I get the information that I get. Is that there seems to be just billions of dollars in Russia that there's a lot of people around the world, you know, and, and business people in America that want it. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of money everywhere. Yeah. Uh, it's not just in Russia. And I think the the moral of the story here yeah. is what happens when you become so rapacious about wanting to get that money wherever it is that everything else pales in comparison, you don't care about anything else. Right. You know, Trump was attracted to Russia for a while because he thought he was going to get his name on a big Trump Tower and make a you know a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah, because yeah. and 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 he might the, have he might have already made it. By the way, the price went up as soon as he became a candidate for president. It went way up uh-huh. because suddenly the name for a long time the name didn't mean that much in Russia. Well, I thought that what was fascinating about the movie about the doc and, and what I learned was that uh, you know during. Um, Gorbachev and then onward into uh, what was Yeltsin. Yeltsin. That, you know, where they tried to experiment with something, some rudimentary democracy and and capitalism, essentially, you know, freeing the market up a bit is just, uh, you know, what that looked like and what, you know, the smarter, more sort of um, ambitious and and, uh, kind of ruthless business people were able, you know, with that small opening of capitalism to literally take over the country. Yes. And and I think I think what you see and it's kind of an interesting it's one of the in- reasons I think it's interesting to look at it, you see what pure free market capitalism with right. no rules looks like. It looks and it like, looks like Al, it looks like Al Capone's Chicago. Right. Yeah. That's right. But it's like it comes down to like these Well eight, these seven eight, guys yeah. ended up controlling fifty percent of the Russian economy by the end of the nineties. Right. And that, and those were the original oligarchs. That's right. And then I guess once it started, to, once capitalism did what it does to, to the sort of bottom line and to people's uh, uh, ability to survive or, or make a living, it, it diminished, right? So the class, uh, the, the sort of class, the lower class became 
completely impoverished. Well, the, the problem was you, you had a system before that, the communist right. system, where everybody was sort of equally poor. Um, right, but taken care of. But to taken a care of. Right. That's right. You you didn't have to worry about starving. Well, suddenly you had to worry about starving. I mean, literally starving. Because there was no safety blanket there in place. There was no safety net. And, yeah. and so, um, but you had an opportunity to make a lot of money because there were no real rules. And so the people who knew how to play the game, and it was kind of a, like a game with no rules or where you could buy the refs at a moment's notice, they became fabulously wealthy. And then a lot of other people, you know, were were starving. So you sort of center the entire through line or the narrative on, on Mikhail, is that how you say it? Michael? M- Mikhail Horikovsky. Horikovsky, who was the, an oil magnet, an well, oil oligarch. He became that. He, yeah. st- he started by selling um, uh, black market blue jeans and computers. And he worked his way up to owning a bank. And then there's this very crooked moment in Russia where Yeltsin wants to get reelected, yeah. 1996. And, but he's got no money. His approval rating was about 3%, and yeah. wages and pensions weren't being paid. So he made this unholy deal that was called Loans for Shares, where he basically got m- millions, billions of dollars from the oligarchs in exchange for giving them shares in Russia's biggest public companies. And so, you know, the oligarchs kind of divide the Russian economy amongst themselves. A couple of them get TV networks. Hodakovsky gets a huge oil company called Yukos. Um, And they come out after the election, and Yeltsin wins. He comes roaring back. He wins, but they, the oligarchs come out owning 50% of the Russian economy. Right. And there's like (laughs) seven of them. That's right. Now- what what I guess what sort of like I need to to get an explanation of it seems to me that another thing I didn't know about Putin was he was sort of a loser. He was a bureaucrat, as a petty bureaucrat, but he was one of those guys, one of those go to guys. You wanted to get a little something done. Yeah, you call Vlad, and, um, and but like I didn't realize like you you know you get this mythology about him that he was this demonic KGB operative, but no, it looked, he looked like a lackey. He was kind of a lackey. I mean, he, he you know if you go back to the kind of stuff he did, he did fix-it stuff, but it was kind of behind-the-scenes fix-it stuff. It, uh-huh. wasn't kind of, it wasn't James Bond stuff. He didn't become James Bond until he became president, and then he used the power of television to sort of create this image of him as this kind of larger-than-life figure. But I also thought what was interesting is that it really illustrates they were bo- you know, that he had a similar kind of uh, disposition as Trump in that you know Trump was this kind of like uh, he seemed like kind of a loser in a way. Right. I mean, no matter how much Trump like presents himself as a winner, there's a core to him that he's sort of a, a schlepper. And it seemed like Putin, certainly early on when he was that he worked for that governor, it, he just looked like one of those guys who's like, someday I'll show them right. that guy. Yeah, though the the difference between them was Trump was always kind of a self promoter. I mean, he was the yes. world's okay, yeah, worst yeah. businessman. Let's right. just say it. He was the world's worst businessman, but he always promoted himself like he was the world's greatest businessman. But he was a buffoon. He was a buffoon. And um, but Putin wasn't. You know, Putin was very much a. a, a a behind-the-counter kind I of guy. I get it. But I guess when I just look at him, he just looks like that guy. But, that- but, but in terms of, you're right in, the, in one sense, and it's uh, like that someday, you know, I'm going to be somebody someday. Yeah, he looked like that, like mm. just like a, a, a nobody. Right. Like a guy that was sort of, you he know. He had ambition. Yeah, down on his luck, had no <laughs> friends, and yeah. was just like, you know, festering. But he was doing favors for people, and then he was he was highly regarded by one of the oligarchs, a guy named Boris Berezovsky, who's in the film, 
and, the TV and, guy. Uh, yeah, and then Yeltsin, and they kind of moved him in because he first comes into power not by being elected, but Yeltsin appoints him president. You know, on Y two K in two thousand. So right. Yeltsin at that point was drinking so much and his brain was so addled he could barely yeah. be understood. Oh really? Um, and and then and Putin takes over, but then once he takes over. Uh, he begins to burnish his reputation and becomes the Putin we know today. Right. He, by, by, you know, taking over the, the so he, I mean, whatever he's doing up there, he's reinstating authoritarianism, right? It's, yes. It, 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 I don't know if it's the original communist system, but it's certainly an authoritarianism. Well, it, it's kind of like a, a crony capitalist system or a gangster capitalist system. I mean, because it's not communism, right? right? It's not state control. It's It's capitalism, but... With all these crisscrossing favors being done with the state, well, what's the difference in terms of the quality of life with the people there? As as you know, during the the sort of uh, outward capitalistic experiment, what is the quality of life now? Do they feel uh, that he's some sort of benevolent ruler that reminds them of well, the old days? And are they are their basic needs being met? I think I, I think Putin did bring stability to Russia, and he was aided in great measure by the fact that oil prices started to soar. Mm-hmm. You know, Russia had a lot of oil, yeah, and that's where Hodakovsky was. He was in the oil business, so suddenly oil prices started to soar. A lot of money started moving into Russia, and so people's um, you know, quality of life did begin to rise. And, and and not only that, but it seemed to be more stable. So I think a lot of people in Russia give Putin a lot of credit for bringing greater stability. But now, then, Yeah, but then there's the great mind fuck, you know, that right. he, he takes over the TV stations, which in, and in Russia, it's not like they, they can't stop all the Internet, as you made a point of seeing. And there is some some resistance, you know, some of it illegitimate, but some legitimate resistance to him. Some that he allows. In, no, but in it, order it, to... it'd be like Fox Cubed. It'd be like, you know, if Trump owned right. MSNBC and Fox. CNN and Fox. No, I get it. I get it. We, we're half an authoritarian state here. <laughs> we're 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 slouching in that direction. Right. Uh, you know, and and it's just. But it, the the interesting thing about seeing what you what you were capturing is that there was a willingness on behalf of. I don't even know if that's the right word, is that the, the brain fuck was, was all in on everybody. And here you can see it's half the people or a little less than half. Right, and right. there's still a great number of people who are like, what happened to my cousin? Right. What happened to my uncle? That's right. Because like they volunteered for this brain fucking that they're not going to recover from. Right. But I don't know who wins. I don't know either. I mean, it seems like the trend globally is to to strongman bullshit. Yes, it is, and and it's a it's not surprising. Look, you know, it happened in previous eras too. When things get uncertain, people want a strong man. Yeah, usually a man who is going to make the trains run on time. But what was so uncertain? The fact that you know men could marry men and women could marry women, and <laughs> there's a certain amount of people that were sort of like now everything's upside down. Right. Like, they, but it's so it's so embarrassing and shallow. I mean, there are Scandinavian countries and other countries in the world that don't even get preoccupied with this crap. That's right. Now, the struggle of Kordakovsky in the movie is that, you know, once he once Well, but Putin says he, he, he basically Putin says to all the oligarchs, look, make all your money. That's fine. I'm not going to take back the money that you guys got for that deal you made with Yeltsin. Uh-huh. But stay out of politics. Uh-huh. And Hodakovsky doesn't stay out of politics. He starts to buy- Because he believes in capitalism. Well, he believes in capitalism. He believes, and he's trying to bring a kind of uh, rule of law capitalism. Because that's the other big thing that was missing in Russia, 
you know, weirdly during the 90s, there was a huge amount of freedom of the press. Uh-huh. And even Yeltsin allowed himself to be criticized rather openly by the yeah. press. But what was missing was a rule of law, right? The courts were feeble. And the sense of uh, of law undergirding the system was, was, wasn't there. So Khodorkovsky becomes interested because he's interested in doing a big deal with ExxonMobil. Um, in a more Tillerson, tr- right? Yeah, yeah. In a more transparent way, um, you know. So you have to have rule of law for that. Um, you have to have a um, a system that you can believe in, so that your property won't get taken away at a moment's notice by yeah. some guy who doesn't like you. Right. So, so then that upset Putin. It did, and and the fact that that Hodakovsky was angling for political influence upset him. And also, Hadakovsky's a pretty powerful guy. He's got a lot of money, and he seems to be buying influence in the Duma, the uh, you know, representative body in Russia. And so, <laughs> but does he or does he not have gangsters? Well, Hadakovsky during this period, and you know, that's the other thing we didn't talk about. I mean, not only was it a crazy time for people, you know, who had always been kind of guaranteed a living now. You know, they could starve. They yeah. might be successful. Right. But it's also a terribly violent time because, right. you know, you and so, you know, Hodakovsky had kind of like a private army. If you, you know, people told me if you walked into his offices, uh, the offices of Yukos, the oil company, you know, you'd see these guys with long uh, leather jackets with Kalashnikovs sticking out of them. You know, it was it was a rough because, and tumble time. Because in the movie, you know, he's sort of you know presented as as a, a noble character, a flawed noble character that that's trying to you know that's fighting a good fight. But you realize that you, you know with the case of the the assassination of that uh, was it a mayor? mayor the mayor like they were trying to hang it on him. But they, but there is a window there where you start when you watch the thing where you realize in order to hold on to or, or accumulate that much power, he must have he must have had his thugs. He did. Yeah. He did. Did have his thugs, and uh, I think it was a. That's why you know one of the guys in the film, this guy Derek Sauer, who was uh, who ran the Moscow Times, you know, he came to Hodakovsky because he knew as a up, as a rising upcoming businessman, he was going to be extorted by thugs, right? And so he needed a krisha, a, a roof, protection. Yeah. And so he came to Hodakovsky for protection because because had muscle. So so that was it. All these oligarchs were. It was almost tribalism in that they each all had their private. It was Al Capone enforces. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, given that they were in different businesses, there was sort of there must have been a detente among them for there the was. most part. There was, and and that's why you call them oligarchs in a way because it was a system that they were kind of. Uh, feeling that they were in control of, you know, that they were able to manipulate the levers of government in in their interest. So then, when Putin runs them all out, takes doesn't over run the them business. all out, but he basically says that like he runs the two TV guys out so that he they can take over, right. he can take over TV. Some of the other oligarchs are like, okay, we'll play ball, we'll do whatever you say, just let us keep making money. They're still up there. Uh, some of them, yeah. and um, and then Hodakovsky is like, well, I've got uh, other plans, and and I want a different kind of Russia than the kind of Russian that you yeah. want. And there's a famous exchange between them. It's actually televised, live television. It's a <laughs> it was a big program on corruption. Yeah, and Hodakovsky calls out Putin publicly yeah. for corruption. And yeah. A few months later, Hodakovsky was in prison on his way to the Gulag in Siberia. And he spent like seven years there? Or? Ten. Ten years. Ten years. Hard hard time near a uranium mine in the Mongolian-Chinese border. And then he came back. He came back. He was pardoned. And so he didn't really come back. I mean, part of the deal was that he would leave. Because I think during prison, something happened. Because look- 
Hodakowski was a ruthless businessman during the 90s, uh, particularly during the 90s. You know, he took advantage. And a lot of people think he's a terrible guy for, for, for what he did and the degree to which he took advantage. But in prison, I think it t- he took a good hard look at the system and also at himself. And he became a kind of character who was inspirational for people. He would write these letters. He would write articles. And it was all about how Russia can become you know, a more uh, inspirational democratic country, yeah. you know, that doesn't transgress on the, on the, on the civil rights of its people. And, and he became kind of a heroic figure. So the fact that he was in prison looked bad for Putin. And a lot of foreign leaders were like, you got to let this guy, Hodakovsky, out. The pressure was too great. Putin saw the Sochi Olympics coming up. So he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll let him out, make sure to get him out of the country. Um, and he, he, he let him out on the same day and, and as part of the same order with Pussy Riot. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and then he, 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 he's in exile now. He's in exile. He lives in London where, <laughs> where things aren't always so safe for Russian exiles. No, they seem to be uh, They're dropping like flies. Radioactive yeah. Uh, waste. Mist. Yeah, that's right. So, but when was the murder charge hung on him? So the murder was back in 98. And back then, you know, it seemed like two Chechen gangsters had done it. I mean, they literally sprayed this guy with with gunfire. Hodakowski got a call saying, you know, his brains had spilled out of his skull. Right. Um, The Chechen gangsters were arrested. They were briefly let go. And then they were murdered. And that's kind of where the story sat. But then when Hodakowski was arrested five years later, 2003, suddenly... It's like the the government discovers a whole new set of possible perps, and they start laying the groundwork for the idea that it may have been Yukos that had done it. Uh-huh. Um, and over time, uh, it gets closer and closer and closer to Hodakowski until after Hodakowski is pardoned and he leaves the country, finally they literally charge Hodakowski with murder. Is that a way to keep him out of the country? Yes, Okay. And and why why would it have been Yukos? I can't remember what the connection of the mayor was to the Well, you know, there was a big this was it shows you how freewheeling it was. I mean, um, you know, the mayor of this town, Neftugans, was a big oil town. Yeah. And he was complaining that um, you know, Yukos wasn't paying its fair share of taxes. Hodakowski was saying, "Look, we pay you taxes, but basically, you're doing what you're doing with our money is you're giving it in bribes to these Chechen gangsters." Yeah. So there was one famous time where Hodakowski flew into town with big bags of cash and was paying nurses and doctors and civil servants directly, <laughs> and so there was a huge um, conflict between the mayor and Hodakowski. I get it. So there was a there was no doubt that there was a. Ill will between them, but not like, but like if, but it's not the same ill will as if he doesn't make his payment on time. To well, the y- you know that that's what people speculated about because it was such a rough and tumble time. And yeah. by the way, he was killed on Hodakovsky's birthday. Yeah, and there's a tradition like this. This journalist Anna Politkovskaya was killed on Putin's birthday, and the way it works, people say, is that you know lower down functionaries decide this is a way to please the boss. Uh-huh. Right? So it's a sign of respect. Oh, oh okay. Right? Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, there was some question as to whether that was going on. But the, the thing that argues against that is that um, he w- the mayor was killed just a few days after Hodakovsky and the mayor had come to a deal. 
Right. So they finally, after all of this conflict, they'd come to a deal. So it's a funny time to kill somebody. All right. So he was most likely railroaded. Right. And and I think the what the film tries to show, uh, you know, without knowing exactly who killed the mayor, is yeah. that when you have TV that is doing your, you know, when you own the TV stations. Yeah you can slowly but surely construct fictions that become reality. And for everybody today in Neftugansk, they only believe one thing, that Hodakovsky killed the mayor because Putin's, you know, propaganda campaign was, you know, ruthlessly effective. It's, it's in, and so that was the impetus for telling this story now? I think the impetus for, you? for the impetus for telling this story now was, was twofold. One was to find out about Russia. Like how did Russia, how does power in Russia work? Right. Right. And and in so doing, you can see Hodakovsky, but it also tells us a lot about Putin. But the other one was it was kind of a cautionary tale for us. Like you can look at this film and you can see here's what pure free market capitalism looks like. Here's what happens when politicians really get control of the media. Here's what happens when the truth doesn't matter anymore. Here's what happens when the judiciary is weak. You know, all those things, <laughs> if we're watching a film like this, should give us pause like, hmm, you know, are we sliding in this direction? Yeah. Well, I mean, the truth uh, is becoming nebulous and, and, and this like I I still I, I just I think what we're finding is that civic duty, understanding, you know, what what makes this country function and work and great and, and just sort of, uh, you know, how politics works. You know, most people don't know and they don't give a fuck. Right. And and there's this idea of like America this, America that, America's great, but most people paying lip service to most things around America, even intelligent people that you and I know, they they don't really know what the fuck they're talking about and they don't know, you know, what's at stake. And so when you hear bits and pieces of of, of hearsay or clickbait or whatever and then all of a sudden you're going, like, I don't know. It's like at some point there has to be a barometer of fact. Right. And, and, and institutions, uh, you know, the fifth estate or whatever that you believe. That's right. Uh, but like now, I think what's happening more than just propaganda is that the dissemination of information in general uh, is uh, allowing people to to get uh, to to kind of get untethered. It becomes overwhelming, the volume of information and the volume of clickbait information. That's, I think, one of the, you know, a serious problem, too. It's like this stuff comes. It, there's such pressure to 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 generate uh, stuff so quickly, yeah. Without taking a beat and saying, "Well, wait a minute, what really happened here? Maybe we should take a few days to actually figure that out, or even just read the whole article." Right. <laughs> you know, I think I think that most people just take in these moments, and it's enough to throw a switch in their brain to go like, "Yeah, I heard that thing was not uh, this or that." Well, and and that is a human problem that we all have. You know, that confirmation bias thing, where we're we're kind of hardwired to believe what our tribe believes, right? And so um, this media environment where everything is designed to kind of, um, you know, like Pavlovian terms to try to make you, yeah. um, you know, hate the other side yeah. and, and believe your side is good. Right. It's just, it, it, it's meant to be sort of emotional, um, 
food. Right. Sure. Um, yeah, for yeah, for yeah. our worst impulses. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it, this need for it's just a very odd thing that uh, people think that things are so compartmentalized and things that you know, like with conspiracy theories, that right. things like you know, like just because you can put these pieces together and get the. Uh, the answer that you want, that they could actually happen that way. Well, they make us feel comfortable because they give it's us like, a yeah. sense of certainty. It's like it's a, it's almost like religious dogma. Yeah, that's in, right. In, in a it's, way, it is like religion. I yeah. mean, and it's uh, you know, I, I, as you you know, I did a film about that, and the subtitle was "The Prison of Belief." You well, know, yeah, once you get locked in the prison of belief. You know, then things are a problem. Well, what the, did you learn? Because I saw that you know a while back that the, the Scientology, Scientology film. Now, when when you went into that, you know, outside of you know, just the the same curiosity we all have. You know, I sure. I, I I'm not fundamentally uh, able to suspend disbelief. The, the, the hardly at all, let alone what's necessary to believe bullshit. Right. You know, I mean, I believe my own bullshit, but the whole God thing and yeah, I'll run like because when on the outside, when you look at you know Fox News or Scientology, it's right. similar. Uh, in some ways, in terms of the brain fucking it'll give you. Sure. You know, when you're not the kind of person that can suspend your disbelief, you're like, how the hell does that happen? Well, and that's what I was interested in. I was interested because, and, and, I, and I found a group of people who agreed to be interviewed, including, you know, the director, Paul Haggis. Yeah. The, oh, yeah, sure. The, the, the actor, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember his name now, wonderful actor who's on the Chicago uh, police show. Um, Is he out or in? No, he's out now. Yeah. Uh, but all these people were, um, uh, what was interesting to me was to find out how they got in because they were all smart people, right? Right. And the answer is a little bit at a time, uh. you know, that because that, when Scientology first comes at you, they don't say, look, here's the secret papers that tell you about TGAC, the foreign planet, and the, the yeah. overlord with who blows shit up in volcanoes. Yeah. No, you don't get any of that stuff. You just get, you sit down with this machine, yeah, yeah. and somebody talks to you like a therapist talks to you. It's a self-help It's a self-help kind of yeah. thing, and it, you, you feel better. Like, you talk yourself out, you tell a few of your problems. And it's simple, get and clear. And it's simple. You get, well, even, even before that, it's just like, just talk some problems out. Sure. You're thinking, oh, gee, that felt good. Yeah. Maybe I'll go back. Yeah, right. And slowly but surely, you get indoctrinated into a, a series of um, uh, belief systems, but also, you know, a different kind of a language. I talked to Scientologists who were on the verge of getting out. In fact, I talked to Leah Remini just as she was on the just as she had, had gotten out, and it was almost hard to understand her because the degree of jargon was so intense. Like I was there with a researcher who had been in the Scientology subject for so long. She was like translating for me like I was talking to Hodakovsky or something. Right. You know, but it's that slow immersion process that uh, that takes you there. And then you find yourself um, years later, if you want to get out because you realize all sorts of human rights abuses are going on, you realize, well, I've been a fool, but how do I now admit to myself that I've allowed myself to be fooled. That's a very hard thing to do. Well, that's why we're fucked as a country. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly, you know, like, because I know there's a lot of people that now a good percentage of their anger is, 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 uh, is at themselves that they, and they can't accept that. That right. their pride won't allow them to accept that they were wrong. That's so right. they're going to double down. That's right. 
And that's a huge problem. It's scary, dude. Yeah, it is scary. And you found that with Scientologists as well? Big time. I mean, I think that's what was so tough. And that's why it's so hard for people to leave. Because they have to admit. Shame. Yeah, yeah, and it's as though they have to admit that they've been lying to themselves for these years, that they've, they've wasted their lives. And that's a very hard thing to do. Now, I don't think they wasted their lives. And, and the way they ultimately get out is by saying, look, it's a long journey I'm on. And those few years, I may have been fooled, but I'm a good person and I'm coming out the other side, all that. But it's it's a very hard thing to admit that you were wrong. It's interesting because that happens in personal relationships as well. All the time. It happens in politics. It happens in personal relationships. It's, you know, we're hardwired to believe in some ways, even though we have the capacity to to check those beliefs with a kind of rational understanding of what's going on. The belief thing is some sort of mutation of, of some kind of survival instinct. Indeed. So, so you're not, you know, existentially isolated and terrified all the time right and 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 sometimes it's useful i mean we're oh yeah we're imbued with snap judgment so that you you know when it's dark and and you hear a sound yeah. that's loud you know you jump and you look around you know yeah. rather than just sure. sit there yeah, I mean, it's also useful and even a, like you know, just in a sort of like you know keeping your shit together on a day-to-day basis you <laughs> you have to assume that there's something it, it, it's some sort of faith to believe that w- life is worth living. Yes. <laughs> it can be vague. Yeah. But you know. that that vague faith, I, I, I'm okay with that. I'm yeah. down with that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, did you like what 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 drives you towards, you know, and even the Enron thing? Well, that was sort of straight up, you know, like, let, let's get it. Let's get inside this racket. Well, it was. But yeah. what was interesting to me and, and the, the part that was hard to get at. Yeah was the culture of Enron. And the culture of Enron did turn people into something different. Because, I mean, we're here in California, and like the worst of Enron was that period when these uh, electricity traders were shipping electricity out of the uh, state, waiting for prices to rise, and then shipping them back in. And And that was the period where they were causing brownouts all over the state, blackouts, all that stuff. And the funny thing was, as I began to do research into some of these traders, particularly the ones who were caught and um, charged, and in some cases convicted, you know, you would have thought, okay, they must have been the worst kind of people. But you look at who they were in their communities, like they were the people who were, you know, always beating the drum for charitable contributions. They were they were doing help at the fire department. They were, you know, they were extraordinarily civic minded people right. in their private lives. Yeah. But they had become convinced that that Enron was this avatar of pure capitalism, and that you had to be a shark. Right. Well, I think that's uh, again that's uh, you, you, the the wave of that is still kind of uh, of happening. That there's this idea. And, and and now it's it's different in terms of of what's happening politically, where you know the the construction or or the tenets of democracy are 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 becoming seen as as archaic in in the face of sort of like well why shouldn't he be able to fucking do whatever's necessary right to he's to the president win? what what else what but, good is being president but if you can't do what you want right but anybody <laughs> the, the the number of shameless small time fucking grifters that this guy's attracted to government which right. has always been a republican thing put somebody at the head of the agency that'll collapse a thing that's right you know it's just that's the way they 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 want to uh you know deconstruct the state 
Right. But but uh, but the sort of shamelessness on behalf of regular people and lack of tolerance and and just sort of like you know these Republicans in Congress, they're they're insulated to the point where they it's it's not that they really believe what they're saying, but they're like, who gives a fuck? We're going to win. Well. And at the end of the day, it's all about winning. But you've got to wonder, like, winning for what? You know, because I've talked but to some- But wasn't that Re- the same with Enron? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've talked to who? I talked to some Republican congressmen. Yeah. And they're like, this is really bad, but we're, we, we can't say anything. So, so keep up the pressure. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's like, on you, yeah, journalist. It's on you, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a good job. Yeah, we need you. Right, yeah, keep keep going. And then they you will know, turn and, around and go fake news. Exactly, leaving the building. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it, man. No, but Enron, these the, the the people were imbued with this sense that only by being the most rapacious bastard, yeah, you know, could you make the market work. Right. You know, and that was the the view, right? Yeah. Um, and everybody got into that culture until, of course, it collapsed because it it led to rank criminality, which it which it will. And I I don't and I have to assume that they know that mm, they knew and they didn't know. I mean, I I think that's where you get into this vibe where you in order to lie effectively, you have to lie to yourself. Right. Because uh, and that's and that's belief. That's belief. And um, and it's a variation. You know, there's a there's something if, if one thing has turned my head around in terms of doing documentaries these last 15 years, it's the idea of the end justifies the means. Yeah. I used to actually believe that was a good idea. Like if you have a noble end. Yeah. OK, you have to get your hands dirty. Yeah. I now see how dangerous that is because once you go down that road, slippery slope. It's a very slippery slope. The police call it noble cause corruption. You know, you start planting, um, you know, heroin in people's yeah. pockets and stuff like that because you can't get them for murder. Right. And the next thing you know, everybody's bad and you're entitled to be corrupt because you're the good guy and they're the bad guys. Or you, yeah, you've you've created your own uh, moral universe. Right. That's right. And then you become the monster cop. That's right. Yeah. So, like, when did you what what compelled you to? Uh, I seem to be using the word compel a lot because I, I did not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, they compel. my wife was compelling me to work. Is what was happening. It was like, dude, we need some money. But right. wait, but but did you? Was it always journalism? I mean, wh- where did you start? Where did you grow up? I grew up in on the East Coast. I grew yeah. up uh, kind of in the Boston area, and then oh yeah, what part? Uh, Cambridge. Oh, you were in Cambridge? Yeah. We, uh, well, that's fancy. Well, it was. I were mean, your I, fa- parents academics? Well, my mom my mom and dad got divorced when my dad was a journalist. My mom and dad got divorced when I was three. He uh-huh. stayed in New York, and my mom went to Cambridge, and she worked for Children's Hospital. Okay. She was a director of health education. She she had a, actually had a part. Do you ever read Curious George Goes to the Hospital? Yeah, I think so. She, well, I mean, anyway- I, she, I'm not sure I remember it. Well, anyway, she had a part in, in helping to- Put oh, that yeah? book together. Oh, yeah. That's nice. So so anyway, so I grew up in Cambridge and then she married the chaplain at Yale. Yeah. And I moved to New Haven for the last two years of high school. And who was that? He was a famous guy. William Sloan Coffin. I mean, that he was like uh, an interesting figure, right? He was an interesting kind of civil rights figure and then very much anti-war activist. But wasn't he one of those guys like, you know, I, I didn't do a lot of research, but I, I knew the name and I was kind of poking around. Wasn't he a guy that was on the other side and then, you know, had some sort of come to Jesus moment and then- well, Way back in the day, he was OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA. Yeah. And then, but then he had a lot of, I mean, he, he wanted to be a concert pianist for a while, and then he entered divinity school. 
you know, at Harvard? From, no, Yale? Uh, I, th- I believe it was Yale. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, and the, was he a believer? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. He was a believer. And this is the guy- He used you, to say, there's a great expression, which I'm not a believer, but I like the idea of it, even for non-believers. He used to say, I love the, I, I love the recklessness of faith. First you jump and then you grow wings. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you hope. You hope. Well, yeah, that, that's what faith is all about, right? Or else yeah. uh, the, worst, the worst case scenario, you fall flat on your face exactly. and it or, knocks you so stupid that you go ahead believing anyways. Or angrily. it's, or it's, uh, or it's Wile E. Coyote and there's a long way down. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And you just become the, the chip on your shoulder. Right. Oh, man. But wait, wasn't, that, there, wasn't there a famous uh, Christian philosopher at Yale? What was that guy's name? Newbor? Niebuhr. Niebuhr. Yeah. Because yeah. I think I read some of that stuff. Wasn't right. he a progressive yes. Christian philosopher? Yes. Was he- was And he was very much, I mean, it's interesting now because uh, in the 60s in particular, there were a lot of sort of um, uh, socially conscious, liberal- Yeah. Um, Clergymen. Clergymen. Yeah. A lot more seemingly than today. Sure. They were on the front lines with That's the right. Jews and the civil rights movement. That's right. Yeah. Jews and Christians <laughs> yeah, used right. to have uh, you know, a lot of soul when it came to doing the right thing. That's right. And so you grew up with that guy. Indeed. And and you, you But you maintained a relationship with your father. That I was, did. I did. Yeah. What I, kind of journalist was he? He worked for Time, Life, Newsweek. You yeah. know, he had... And, um, uh, and then ended up... Uh, he was one of those guys who... Uh, <laughs> he's he sucked down and kicked up so he got fired from a lot of jobs um but ended up in encyclopedia britannica which caused huh. him to live in japan for a lot of his life wow so what, what did, he, did he did he give up no he didn't give up i mean he his he went over there to do a job which was to translate the encyclopedia britannica or supervise the translation yeah. of the britannica into japanese oh my god cuz he had learned japanese when during the war as a, as a whole generation of japanologists did you know he was an interrogator during oh, oh, really? during world war 2 yeah uh-huh interesting so you got what got him fired? Was he like uh, he would just mouth off to his superiors? I mean, you know, he was a he was a good journalist. He he did one sort of muckraking book called The Operators. Uh-huh. You know, all about bad businessmen. Oh yeah. Um, and then he did a famous uh, a book that was famous for pu- kind of putting Japan on the map called Five Gentlemen of Japan. But he he was a good journalist, but he was he didn't uh, get along with his bosses very well. So that's the simplest well, way it sounds it. like, you know, as, as two male role models, it, it makes sense of where you are. Yeah. And your mom, do you, you have kids? I do. I've got I mean, three kids. Yeah. you nice to them? <laughs> you <laughs> so, have to ask them. I think I am. So that's what you got from your mom. Right, exactly. <laughs> now, do you, like, was this always the idea it was to go into journalism? Where'd you go to college? I went to Yale. Oh, you, that's fancy. Yeah, it was. And then I went to UCLA film school. Oh, so you? But so, what was the intent? I mean, I wanted to be a filmmaker. My dad wanted me to go the family business, which was print journalism. But I, I really caught the movie bug in college, and like one in particular. You know, the two that I remember being floored by, one was a doc and one was a fiction film. The doc was um, Give Me Shelter by the Mazels Brothers. I just talking to a guy yesterday about that. It's such a great film. And and it's it's structured like a murder mystery. Uh You know, that's the cool thing about it. But of course, it's the Stones and it's this cinema verite thing that the Mazels did. And then there was a a film by a Spanish filmmaker, Louis Bunuel, called uh, The Exterminating Angel. Yeah. 
yeah. which is a great film. Very dark, very funny. I remember those. I mean, I think I remember when Shannon Delu, what was that one? Where the, where oh, the, that's the one that, where the, the cutting eyeball. of the eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing he did that with Salvador Angel. Dali. Right. Yeah. Wasn't Exterminating Angels? Was that? It's or, about, a, about a bunch, bunch of, of fancy people, people right, right. who go to a dinner party. Right. And then all the servants are like, we got to get the fuck out of here. And, um, and then for reasons that nobody can explain, they can't leave the room. And they end up, you know, society breaks down. They end up you know, trying to kill each other. They try to fuck each other. They, yeah. You know, everything breaks down. Um, so these are like, I, I think those seem to make sense. For yeah. <laughs> what you became. Exactly. But you never wanted to do uh, uh, fictional features? I did. I mean, I, I right out of UCLA film school, got a job with the Samuel Goldwyn Company. And I... I, I I was interested in fiction features, and and I, I wanted to be an editor. Uh, you know, I cut some exploitation trailers. I was oh, the yeah? second editor on this film that they did, and and then I got frustrated um, because being an editor, if you're not on a good picture, is a tough job. Yeah. So I kind of hung out a shingle as a documentarian, yeah. which <laughs> didn't work out very well for about. Ten years. Well, how'd you start? Like, what? How? What is that? Like, what? What were? What were the first sort of forays into it? So, when did you graduate? What year? So, I never graduated from the film school. Oh, um, you know, I left because I got a job with Goldwyn. Yeah. Um, but you thought that was the ticket. I thought that Hands was the on, ticket, man. Yeah, exactly. I'm learning. I'm I'm on the way. Yeah. And that would have been like in the early '80s. Yeah. Um, but then, you know. I did a couple of films. Uh, I did this one film called Battle for Eastern Airlines about a big strike. Uh huh. But I was scuffling. Yeah. And, and I was doing a lot of freelance writing. I, I wasn't really getting as far as I thought I should. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't really. Um, I didn't really get started until I I went to New York, which was not until like the late nineties. Yeah, and what and what were the what was the what was the one that that you consider the one that kind of put you on the map? There were there were two. You know, I, I was involved with Eugene Jarecki. I did this thing called the Trials of Henry Kissinger about the dark side of Henry Kissinger. I kind of remember that. But, but you, did you direct that? No, I yeah. wrote and produced yeah. it, and and Eugene directed it, and uh, and then I did Enron. Right. The big thing that kind of changed my head about how to do it all was. Uh, the Blues. I was part of this series, The Blues, that Martin Scorsese produced. Yeah. It's a series of docs with fiction filmmakers. Uh, Marty did one. Clint Eastwood did one. Vim Vendors did one. Antoine Fuqua did one. Um, and uh, Mike Figgis. I, I, so I got to be there. I was the producer. And so I got to watch sort of men at work, right? And what what what, what sort of struck you about that? In terms what struck of- me about it was that they had tremendous respect for the real stuff, like the the blues and what it was and, 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 and this documentary material. Were you a blues fan? I was a blues fan, but I, I also have to say I didn't know that much about it yeah. like until I really dug in. And um, But then it was their ability to kind of find a personal way in and... Uh, and to make it a kind of artistic statement that is, on the one hand, was personal to them uh-huh. in terms of what they wanted to say, but had great respect for the documentary material itself. Right. So that tension was really interesting. So the the films were wildly different. And I realized, oh, you know, there's no rule book here. I, you can do anything you want. So, so what struck you was that there was still sort of a... An auteur sensibility to capturing the yes, facts. Yes, that's right. 
That's right. Is that you know the in documentary uh, a point of view uh, is is not only possible but essential and and can go as far as you want it. I think that's right. And there's some people that uh, sort of impose themselves too much. I agree. I mean, but you know that's it's all a matter of taste. It's choices. But I think the 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 great thing is and what led to the kind of this golden age of documentary was breaking free from the rule book of the big three network documentary the In old television, white papers yeah yeah well i mean what's interesting also is that like you know there there is there, I, I used to do a joke about that. It's sort of like uh, about like enough docs, right? right? You know, just I well, mean, my, I was told don't say the word documentary when you're yeah, going in for a job. Just, just you know, because you have right. a cell phone and a dying cat doesn't right. make you a filmmaker, you know. So, <laughs> right? Uh, hey, like I go like I'm going to call it one of nine, <laughs> but uh, but I did like because there are a lot of docs, and then now in in this age because they're cheaper to make, and you can approach it however you want to approach it. That's right, and you know you can in, insert your as much as you want but what what is if you're going to kind of assess this is an interesting thing i'm just thinking of now that there was a time where you know where people were were able to buy cameras right. you know, instant cameras yeah right so then you had sort of like this struggle within the community of art historians so how do we establish photography right. as an art form you have documentary photography and you have art photography but you right. have every asshole in the world's got a camera that's right so that sort of clouds the right the, the water and who who, who gets what it's sort of like the idea of the pencil. I mean, anybody can use a pencil, <laughs> right? <laughs> sure, that's, you know, a, but, that's an easier idea. Right. Than... But uh, because when I was coming up, you know, it was a harder barrier to entry because it was 16 millimeter film. 16 millimeter film was expensive. Right. That's and, what, yeah. and to rent a camera, that was expensive. Now the barrier is much lower. I mean, you can you can shoot something on your, your Samsung or your iPhone or whatever. Sure. And then, you know, even if you borrow somebody's computer, you edit it together and bingo, you got a movie. Um, you know, so so the barrier to entry is lower. But, you know, like like any medium, it's what does the artist do with the material? Right. But also, like, the, the sad thing is not unlike, you know, clickbait or any sort of dis- you know, information uh, um outlet is that uh, yeah i mean the, we can still have these the standard but but the market's going to be flooded with content is what it, they call it now it is it it's flooded with content but i I, th- I think the good stuff does rise to the top you know yeah. people and um and the interesting things about docs be, particularly in this moment you know where we're dominated by clickbait and social media yeah you know in a period of 90 minutes to two hours or, or, or take some of the, you know, doc miniseries like the Jinx, you know, yeah. you immerse yourself in a world and the world, for, at least for my money, the worlds that are more complicated, that you, you walk out of it thinking, I'm not sure what I think. Um, right, but, that seems but I'm to be, thinking about it. That seems to be the that seems to be the agenda of a good doc. When you walk out, like I don't know if he killed him, right? <laughs> or yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or I maybe I know he killed him, but was that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, is right. he a bad person because right. of it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So all those things, because if you don't think about it after you left, then it feels like it's not a good documentary. Um, but but that aspect is what we so desperately need, it seems to me. You the know, thinking. The thinking part, yeah. you know, rather than ready, uh, fire, aim. Right, yeah, it, it, it doesn't serve to convolute the truth in such a, uh, a kind of, uh, in a way that, that people who are trying to hide something do. Like, you know, well, and, and that was like in the, in the movie, the Citizen K movie, yeah. you know, that's what interested me about the murder, right? Right. 
for a long time, the murder was gray. It was yeah. complicated. You didn't right. know exactly what it was like. Right. But the goal of the Putin regime was to try to make it as simple as possible. So the gray separates into pools of black and white. You've got a guy with a white hat. You've got a guy with a black hat. Mm-hmm. Simple. Right? Well, here what you have, it seems what's happening, on, uh, happening in our authoritarian experiment is that it's not a white hat and a gray hat. It's sort of like, well, you know, what they're saying is is too simple. It, it, this one seems a little more elaborate and complicated and crazy, but that makes it more true. Yeah. Like when you look at conspiracy theories and the logic in them. Yeah. You know, you know, you can take anything. It's, it's but, but the thing about conspiracy theories, though, is they do fit together at some point. It's well, like no, but it's, you, a, it's all retroactively, right? Yes, it's of a course. it's a way that stupid people feel smart. That's right. You know, who don't like you know, necessarily put context on anything, just line up a bunch of things, not even necessarily in a chronological order. Well, and and, and ascribe to them a kind of intention. Right. That, that may have been pure circumstance. And there's, a, I think there's a romanticization of it that, you know, something could be that devious. <laughs> it just plays into their sense of... of uh, Intrigue. The, yes. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, who the bad guys are. And, but, but so that disrupts the truth because they, they can't accept... Sometimes it's just mundane. Right. Is it they 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 refuse to have you know to think that you know history just kind of plays out in sort of a strange bureaucratic way and they're you know people aren't as organized as they attribute them to be. I think that's always the case. Yeah. Yeah. But uh anytime you think that Sauron and the Black Tower has planned it all, you know, you've probably got it wrong. I mean, look, I I just as an old school kind of like uh aggravated lefty thinker, I'm I'm disappointed in the deep state if they do exist. I would expect <laughs> you would have expected more from oh, them. Yeah, I thought they would have nipped this thing in the butt if they exactly. were as good as we thought they were. Exactly. It turns out they don't exist at all. <laughs> it turns out they're all fucking hacks and just right. like sloppy. Where's Smiley? Yeah, yeah. So what was this? Uh, the Hunter S. Thompson doc he did. Gonzo. Uh, was, was he alive when he did it? Uh, no. Oh. The, my first day on the job was to photograph his funeral. The Johnny Depp version, uh-huh. where they blew his ashes. Oh yeah, up. in the rocket. Yeah, yeah. And I got into it after that. What, what drew you to that? Because I see on on the resume, there's a couple uh, sort of like, uh, kind of like uh, boomer heroes, you know, and my heroes too. But Ken Kesey and and, and Hunter, that both, you, both those guys were heroes to me, and for kind of similar reasons. I mean, uh, Hunter. I thought one of the great political books of all time was his Campaign 72 book. Sure. It was just great. Yeah. And it mixed the rigor of a journalist with the kind of artistic ambitions of the novelist. Right. Right? Yeah. You know, all that stuff. And You and, become and, the story. Yeah. You become the story, but also you can, you, you want to riff on something, go for it. You see Muskie, he looks, you know, heavy-lidded and, and, and dark. And so you imagine that he's... You know, uh, addicted to the strange Congolese hallucinogen Ibogaine. Yeah, why right? not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Um, you know, Nixon he imagines as a werewolf. You know, dripping with blood. You sure. Know, leaving the White House. Why not? So I was really interested in that. And um, but the difference between him uh, that now then and that now is there are people on the right who would think like he is addicted to Ibogaine. Right. And they, <laughs> that's clearly why. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Hunter knew it was a joke. He was, yeah. He could turn a phrase, dude. Yeah. He he was really a masterful writer. Funny. And uh, but so yeah, lo- so he had a liberty. He had a freedom to do that. That's stuff. right. And, and, he- and that's what I loved about him. So I thought, I well, let me explore. Let me get into it. I was also interested too. I mean, he had a kind of personal tragedy, which is that he, I mean, it was the drugs, but really the alcohol. But yeah. But then he became 
it's like the great lesson for artists. It's like, don't believe the clippings. Yeah. He became a kind of caricature of himself. Yeah. Where people counted on him to be Hunter. And then he kind of thought, well, what would Hunter do? Meaning some fictional version of who I am. Well, yeah, and he held court and he had these yeah. like, you know, acolytes who were, you know, pushing him too far. Right. And he, he, he was never able to, at least uh, seemingly never able to self-assess enough to kind of uh, manage his life. That's right. And uh, and also, you know, when you're young and you're self-medicating with all those drugs and alcohol, you can manage it. You, yeah, no, he kind of wet-brained himself. Yeah, that's right. He did. Uh, like, he, I think he actually did, he did fucked his brain up. Yeah, he did. You could see it. I, I saw these guys did the last interview with Hunter, uh-huh. and they started it, and then Hunter said, look, I, I got to go. I'll be back and hunter when they started it hunter was sweet he was cool he's great well he went off to the bar and and had a bunch of drinks and we came back he was completely out of control he was howling with anger you know he was incoherent Uh, you know and you could see it there so the the shtick wasn't working anymore it was just sad well yeah he he was writing about sports towards the end right he He wrote about sports though he had these moments of lucidity we 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 talk about one in the film the uh you know right after 9-11 He wrote a piece, and he wrote it for ESPN, because that's who he was writing for at the time. But he wrote a piece that kind of laid out the whole war on terror, where this was all going to go. Yeah. It was a brilliant piece. We started the film with that. Yeah. And was he right? He was dead on. Dead on. Well, I mean, and that you won an Oscar for a movie you did about the the sort of uh, downside of the war on terror. The dark side. Taxi to the dark side. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me that now, like, with the kind of... um, attempted authoritarian takeover of the system where you have, you know, Trump as this president who who is uh, thinking he's going to embolden the military by enabling them to commit war crimes uh, without uh, uh, any any kind of um, punishment. Uh, you, you know, a movie like Taxi to the Dark Side is a, you know, an uh, you know, indicator of, of that of that should be, you know, not 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 a question. Right. And it's interesting, Taxi to the Dark Side, which is all about torture and how the Bush administration basically um, enabled a culture of torture. Um, You know, that film, when it was completed, ended up being required viewing at the Army JAG school, you know, and and it was taught frequently at West Point because the real military code knows that there has to be, you know, you're being... It's like the sheriff in the Wild West. You, yeah. know, you, you have a license to kill. Right. But there were uh, laws in war. Yeah. You know, you have to play by the rules. And if you don't play by the rules, discipline breaks down and you're no longer, you're you're playing that game of the end justifies the means. It's just a pure power game. And um, and yeah, and Trump himself also, you remember on the campaign trail said, yeah, we got to bring back torture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he's really... Doing his best to th- this is our this is our, a, a, a real struggle for the system. You know, this is an authoritarian leader yes. that we're dealing with. Yes, and you know whether the system and he's testing our systems. You know, he's it's testing it's our buckling, institutions. Yeah, all of it. Our institutions. They're yeah. buckling. Yeah, they haven't broken yet, but they're buckling. Fuck, man. So what'd you learn about Kesey? Kesey. I was such a huge fan of his. Um, growing interesting, up. Oh, right? The, the, the output was interesting. Like, the you know, out- he had these 
you know, two fucking, you know, amazing moments of clarity in fiction. And then that's right. Kind of what happened. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he's just up there. He was up there. In yeah. The hills. The, but yeah, one flow of the cuckoo's nest. And then sometimes a great, a great notion. notion. Yeah. Those two novels are just real poet. That guy. He was. Yeah. And, but I also like the, for, for Kesey, I like the whole idea of play and magic. Sure. You know, cause for him, you know, there's a famous moan where the pranksters, um, rode in on a big anti-war demonstration in in San Francisco, uh-huh. and for, on the bus, yeah, Neil was driving, undoubtedly, yeah. Um, and for 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 my money, it was a great moment because they saw that in the demonstration, it was a peace demonstration, but they had kind of been imbued with a sort of militaristic form of. The demonstration itself. Of protest. Right? Of protest. Yeah. And Kesey was trying to say, lighten it up. You know, they're, you're playing the rules. You're playing according to their rules, uh-huh. not the rules that we should be, um, you know, investing in, which are the rules of creativity and play and all right. of that, which, which I, I found really interesting. His whole life, he, he was engaged in that idea, which, which I really liked. But the, the film came about because... We discovered that there had been this 16 millimeter film that Kesey shot. Oh, really? Uh, of the famous bus trip. Yeah. Um, and nobody had really put it all together. Across country. Yeah. Both going and then coming back. Um, I love that. I thought that Tom Wolf did a great book. He with, did. He with... did do a great book. Though we got into and we realized how much he had access to some of the audio tapes. Clearly, who and, Wolf did? Yeah. Yeah. Which I didn't really realize. I mean. It was a completely harebrained scheme. They didn't have anybody who knew how to operate the cameras, or they On hated, the bus. The, yeah, or hated the idea of experts. And right. They hired a sound man for one day in New York, yeah. at the World's Fair, and he quit because he was so like, "You guys are fucked." You know, I, yeah, I, I, you're all high and it's crazy, right? And, you know, and and so, but it's magnificent in its way. So we went down the road. We, my editor and co-director Allison Elwood and I, went down the road of trying to reassemble this footage that had been cut to cut apart by Kesey and the pranksters to see if we could put something back together yeah. that would get into that zone. Oh, I got to watch that. Yeah. Did it come out good? I thought so. Yeah. You you tell me, but it's yeah, magic trip. It it, it turned out I think really well and and most of the film is just their footage and their audio, you know, uh-huh. kind of telling the story as they're moving across the country and on, then on the way back. It's kind of an epic journey. Yeah, when I finally read Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, I just- It's a great book. It's great because there's that moment where where Kesey shows up at Millbrook and, yes. they, and looking for With acid. Leary, and Leary is so uptight. Well, that's it, the two schools of acid. Two schools of acid, right. it, like, I just, I love that moment yes. where he's just like, they're up there meditating at some rich lady's house because right. Kesey, or because Leary was a fucking hustler. Right. You know, so he's got the, you know, he's, they're all meditating and wearing robes. Yeah, and, we have that scene in the film. You do? Because they photographed it. Oh. oh it, it's kind of great. It's hilarious. Because he, aren't they all dressed in their, alf, you know, in, like clown in, outfits? Yes, and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're playing instruments, which they really can't play, but, you know, and 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 they couldn't take it, so they 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 beat it off to the local waterfall where they were all, you know, doing the dance. Yeah, doing the dance. And fucking Neil Cassidy was still in it. Well, and now Neil wasn't on the bus on the way back, which made a little made the character of it a lot different. But he was definitely driving the bus on the way across, and it's fascinating to hear him because we've got a lot of his raps on tape. Oh yeah, so you can hear him. Um, talk and he talked incessantly it was like he was the motor yeah it was almost like he was almost like scat singing really yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> so he was really that guy. Really, he that was character. really that character. How, like, is the story about him just dying walking down a railroad track true? Apparently. You have to ask Robert Stone, who sadly I think is no longer with us. He wrote the book, which is a great film. I, I really liked it. It wasn't that much seen, but it was based on his book, Bo- Dog Soldiers, called um, Who'll Stop the Rain? Yeah, with, with Nick, Nick Nolte. Nolte. Yeah. And Nick mm-hmm. Nolte, you know, you can, that's the last scene. He's, he's like walking down that train track. I was sort of obsessed with those guys. I mean, you're a little older than me, so it's probably a little closer for you. Like, uh, how old are you? 66. Yeah, you're 10 See, years. See, my memory's on. going, so yeah. I had to think for a second. But you're 10 years on me, so you right. were actually in it. Right. You know, I, I was the, like the la- I just eked out a boomer. I'm just right. like the last sliver of boomers, but you were like in it. Yeah, I mean, I was like in, in I was 15 and 68, so I wasn't quite like but on you top saw of it, it but right. I saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was right. like mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing. So what, uh, so what, do you, what do you, like, where, where does this movie go now? So it's, uh, you know, it's having a little theatrical run here and around the country and then ultimately end up on Amazon. Uh-huh. And what's the next thing? What do you, what, what's the next fight, man? What are we doing? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, uh, there, there'll, there'll always be something. I, I, I'm doing a, a, a quirky film in the meantime uh, all about um, why we kill. I, I, I got interested in this psychiatrist named Dorothy Lewis can you break it down? <laughs> to a couple reasons. <laughs> I know one of them is over money and one of them is over yeah. pussy. Yeah. But, but <laughs> what's the third one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, she's it, it, it's more of a serial killer thing. Oh. So, this is a woman who's examined more serial killers than just about anybody. And uh, what 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 what, and, what what are you finding out? Well, what's I mean, interesting You're not going to spoil anything. No, I don't want to spoil anything, but I mean, you know, it all goes back to childhood. Let's just say that. Ugh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it does with those guys. Yeah. Everything goes back to childhood. Of course, I guess. that's the. But you mean they found they're they're you know through each of their stories. If you dig in, you 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 find some kind of brain damage and and just a record of horrific abuse, either sexual or physical abuse. Oh, really? Yeah. And do you do like do you do other stuff? Do you do non-documentary stuff? Do you? Yeah, I did. And... I mean, I I did this series called The Looming Tower. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Which was based on the Lawrence Wright book, um, Pulitzer Prize winning book. And it it was all about the battle between the FBI and the CIA in the run-up to 9-11 and how the CIA kind of hid the ball. Why? Um, That's the big question. I mean, one of the guesses uh, is that they, you know, because there were two members of al-Qaeda that entered the country Uh that the CIA knew about uh, 18 months prior to 9-11. Pilots? Well, they ended up being pilots. I yeah. mean, they 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 came and studying, studied how to fly Florida? a plane, and no, San Diego. Uh huh. And the the thinking is that maybe the CIA wanted to flip them, um, but they lost track of them, and then the next thing they knew, they oops, were, oops, right? What yeah, the fuck, exactly. You know, it's like I guess that's the way. See, that's one of those things. Like, where's the conspiracy theory there? It's just like they just made a bad call. Yeah, and they won't cop to it. I mean, that's the and and, and they get very angry. This idea that that, that they they would do something like that, but th- there's been no explanation over it. I mean, they had this information 18 months prior, and at least 50 people knew about these guys, um, and and they knew they had come, they had followed them from a terror summit in Malaysia. Yeah. So they knew all about them. 
Um, but um, they didn't say anything to the it FBI. Comes down, like, yeah, and then it comes down to funding, and it comes down to politics, and it comes down you know, why they insulate themselves like that. You know, they don't want to, because they have to appear like they know exactly what they're doing all the time. Right. right? That's did right. you see this new Adam Driver movie? The one I about? did, the report, Scott Burns. Yeah. It's a good film. I thought so. it was an informational film. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that it was a good learning experience, yeah. and it was well acted. It got a little slow, but it was because it had a lot to, you had to get up to speed on that stuff. Yeah, no, I I, I mean, I know a lot of the players in that. Ali Soufan plays a role. Dan Jones, I know. The guy that Adam Driver plays. That's right. Yeah, you know that guy. Yeah. And it consumed his life. It did. I mean, um, he went down the rabbit hole and, and did a, you know, did a great service to us. I, I, the tragedy, and it was a tragedy of the Obama administration, was that they weren't willing to hold anybody to account. Uh-huh. And the Feinstein Committee and most of those, you know, a lot of what's in that um, report uh-huh. is still classified. So the great body of that is still hidden from the American public. Um, and part of it is like it really kind of revealed in Taxi to the Dark Side, your yeah, movie. I mean, exactly. that's what was going on. That's right. That's but, right. But like I didn't even realize until I saw this new movie, it, just the scope of it. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot. It spread. I mean, you know, the CIA likes to say, well, there were only certain people who were authorized for water. Uh, no, it spread. It spread throughout the system. And I, I talked to guys, you know, um, low-level uh, military police and interrogators in, in Bagram. Yeah. And, you know- the waterboarding thing had so infected the system that it became routine. So whenever they'd get a prisoner, they'd introdu- indoctrinate them or, or I'm sorry, they'd induct them. Yeah. Um, you know, they'd put a bag on their head and they'd cover it with water yeah. to make it hard for them to breathe. Yeah. So it was like mini waterboarding for everybody. So the system, it, it, it migrated like a very virulent virus throughout the system. It was terrible. How the fuck? How does that happen? Like, see, like you know, this is that area that you're kind of dwelling in. There's that, you know, the, the end area- justifies the means. It gets back to that. I mean, they they felt that they had an obligation to prevent that next attack, and so they were going to go. And that's the other thing that I find incredible to, you know, really hard to understand, is the CIA had already gone through a cycle where they had tried and experimented with some of these techniques. Yeah. And found them wanting. What basically they found that what what they deliver is they deliver what the interrogator wants to hear, not right. what the truth is. Right. That takes skill. Yeah. Right. Um, and they apologize to Congress and so forth and so on. Then mysteriously, in the wake of nine eleven, all these techniques come back, and they do it all over again, and they get it wrong. But in this case, because they had such high level buy in, and it migrates over to the armed forces via Rumsfeld. And the next thing you know, it's spreading throughout the system. And that's how you got Abu Ghraib. Right. And, and they, like, but the, the, but that's the thing. is like when it gets down to that level where the people who are administering it, uh, you know, no longer, it's no longer an ends to a means. It's just that they can do it. They can do it. There's a thing they talk about called forced drift. And they-, they What's and, that? Well, the idea that you know, when you're interrogating somebody, he's not giving you the information that you want. Yeah. You have a tendency to amp up the yeah. pressure right. and the violence, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, you, and also it comes from this idea that you've been given permission right. to go there. So then yeah. you, you naturally you start to feel this anger. It builds up and you're unconstrained by any sense of, uh, you know morality or ethics uh, so you, yeah, it's, you, you it's, go there that's the concerning part of the human animal yeah 
that part. Well, and 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 that's why and that's why you know good military leaders would say you need an ethical code, you need rules. Yeah, or these guys are going to act like animals. Yeah, because you, you're placing people in stressful situations yeah. where their buddies are being killed. Yeah, and they're going to just you know cut loose right. in, like an animalistic kind of like you know fuck you. Right. It's not even animalistic; it's actually more human. Right. It's payback. It's payback. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the impulse. And that's what makes it see, that's what makes it sort of like interesting fodder, you know, for people who are tribalistic. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, and and racist. It's like, well, fuck them. You know, well, and that that is, you know, we did this series, um, you know, I was executive producer along with Steven Spielberg that came out recently on Discovery called Why We Hate. Mm. And it was trying to get to the science of why we hate. You know, how did that evolve? Yeah. Um, And interestingly, you know, if you really do a deep dive, and, and they've done some at Yale, and as, as a matter of fact, they've done some wonderful studies in terms of sort of infant study. Of it, it all starts with a sense of justice and injustice. That we're hardwired to get very upset if something's wrong. That, that there's a kind of ethical code we have that mutates over time into sense of perceived injustices. You know, right. particularly as you get associated with a tribe. So you're trying to protect yourself against somebody else. It's yeah. like they've been unjust. Right. You know, we're just. They're getting away. And now we're good and they're bad. And the next thing you know, um, all so, bets are off. So it's a, it, it starts as something relatively good and you then know, mutates. The, the recruiters for ISIS don't start with, you know, come to the Middle East and you can murder people. It starts with a sense of. You know, uh, if you're finding a, a spiritual hole in your life, we can fill that with love and a, and, and a sense of uh, kinship. You know, where uh-huh. where we can reach to a higher place, and so so it's a sense of belonging, a sense of higher ideals. That's the entry point, right? And, you and then it gets people. turned. Yeah, you know, same thing. Scientology. You know, suddenly you start to abuse human rights. I'm not saying Scientology is as bad as ISIS. I'm just saying that's how it gets turned. But it always starts with the appeal to the goodness, right? It's like we all want to feel that we're good, and so that appeal, even when also, we're doing bad, you know, we're right. we're good guys. And uh, an appeal to truth too, right? Yeah. yeah, it's all the same. Fox News, ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all the religion, same. you know, right? Yeah, so the, the whole shebang. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. The only thing that's not right. like that is like, I just want to buy some pie. What kind of, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's fleeting. It's the most harmless yeah. belief system. Yeah. Is what believing. kind of pie? Exactly. Right. Well, well, the good kind. Where, right. Who's got the best pie? Right. I don't know, man. I. Yeah. It's scary, dude. It is scary, but you know what? The 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 good news is that they're always, you know, interesting, engaged particularly young people who are fighting back. And yeah. and that's always the hope. Good. Oh, I, I hope you're right. <laughs> Me too. Well, it was good talking to you. It's great talking to you, Mark. There you go. Learn a few things. Get a deeper, broader understanding of uh, perhaps the government that will be partnering with our government in the future uh, of America, the consolidation in governmental structures that will maybe dominate the next decade or two will be some sort of alignment between uh, Russia and America if we continue moving along this path away from democracy. It's helpful to know what the uh, the new rulers look like and how their system works. So Citizen K is now playing in Los Angeles and will open in other cities in the new year. You can go to citizenkfilm.com. Uh, for more info, it was great talking to Alex, and we'll stick with this for the time being. La Fonda lives!